Welcome back to the London Futurist podcast. Some people have biographical summaries which wear you out just by reading them, and our guest today is one of those people. Lord Clement Jones CBE, or Tim as he prefers to be known, has been a very successful lawyer, holding senior positions at ITV and Kingfisher, among others, and later becoming London managing partner of law firm DLA Piper. But he's better known as a politician. He became a life peer in 1998 and has been the Liberal Democrat spokesman on a wide range of issues. And the reason we're delighted to have him as a guest on the podcast today is that he was the chair of the AI Select Committee and co-chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on AI and is now a member of the Special Inquiry on the Use of AI in Weapon Systems. And as far as I can make out, Tim is also in charge of most of the UK's university and charities. (laughs) Tim, welcome to the London Futurist podcast. Hi, Callum. Great to see you. It's great to have you here, Tim. Hi, David. Tim, when I lived in London and could attend the AI Select Committee meetings, I used to very much enjoy your deft and witty chairmanship. And the reports that your committees produced were comprehensive and impressive, but it was noticeable that very few MPs or lords would turn up to the meetings. Do you think the Westminster bubble understands the importance of AI? That's a really timely question, actually, Callum, because I think the tide is turning. I set up the all-party group in 2016. In 2017, I took the chair of the AI Select Committee. And I would say between then up to about a few weeks ago, the level of knowledge about AI was pretty limited. You know, I count the number of peers and MPs who had any real knowledge of this on the fingers of two hands. And that's about it. But it's extraordinary how one single piece of AI technology, essentially, has actually turned things around. Whatever you think about ChatGPT, whether you think it's great, whether you think it's rather primitive, whether you think it's misleading, whether you think it's creative, it will take, in a sense, the bread out of the mouths of creatives. One thing it has done is sensitized huge numbers of people to the power of AI. And I think that's wholly beneficial, actually, because you and I have been grappling with all the issues around AI, regulation, policy, not wanting to over-regulate, wanting to have the benefits, but not have the high risks in some cases. And now we're getting a much greater degree of engagement by parliamentarians. And it was noticeable Our last meeting of our old party group had many more politicians come along, many more MPs come along. Funnily enough, the balance before was that there were many more peers who seemed to be interested in this in a reflective kind of way than MPs. That has now changed. I certainly think the tide has turned because they're having to talk to their constituents about the implications. Yeah, it's always struck me as being... Utterly bizarre that we are in this period of incredible advance in AI and the things AI is going to do to us. We will have super intelligence within a few decades by the end of the century and we'll maybe have joblessness in a few decades. And yet almost nobody's paying any attention. I've always thought that MPs would start paying attention once their constituencies made them. And so that's now happening. So all praise to Sam Altman. You know, you can argue that he released this thing on the world unsuspecting, but You had to have something like this to wake the world up. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is, because they've been very smart, they opened it up and millions of people literally signed up on the website 
and started using it and talking to their friends about it and so on. But of course, also, this has got a professional element to it as well. And so people like Microsoft are investing heavily in it and so on. And so it's really interesting. It's covering an awful lot of bases because professionals are as excited about this and the way that they can apply it for their own commercial benefit and so on and so forth. So it's reaching, you know, into all kinds of corners that I didn't think would happen quite as fast, actually. Are the MPs who are showing in interest now, are they coming with an attitude of generally trying to learn? Or are they coming with ideologies and coming with ready-made answers and viewpoints? David, I think that's a really interesting point because they come in a spirit of inquiry. Very, very few MPs, and you and Callum probably know exactly who the usual suspects are. They belong to certain all-party groups like PIC4, which is the tech group of MPs, basically. There are very, very few tech MPs, and most of them are coming along in a spirit of inquiry. And a classic example is Peter Bottomley, Sir Peter Bottomley. He's the father of the house, and he's suddenly decided to take an interest, and he contributes in a very thoughtful way, which I think is absolutely great. Because as the father of the house, that means he's the longest standing MP. Well, if the longest standing MP is taking an interest in AI, then there's absolutely no excuse for any other MP. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to know that the House of Commons has its own silver surfer. (laughs) And are they on the whole optimistic or pessimistic or haven't they decided yet? I don't think they've decided. I think when it comes to specific uses, The online safety bill, we had 66 speakers in our debate on Wednesday, which is for a second reading, which is, in a sense, the opening of the batting on a bill in either house. So we had a huge number of peers who really are interested in social media. Because, of course, social media impacts on everybody. And there was a lot of talk about the power of the algorithm and so on and so forth. But I think algorithms are a little bit sui generis. I think they're a case unto itself because people are concerned about the power of amplification through algorithm selection, targeting, and so on and so forth. Whereas I don't think people understand enough about the other applications of AI to really get to grips with it at this stage. And so I'm a bit like in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So people tend to ask me about these things. But I'm not Stuart Russell or Mike Wooldridge or Wendy Hall, for heaven's sake. But I am a parliamentarian who's been thinking about this for quite a long time. My observation is that even the people you think of as experts are being taken by surprise as well, if they're honest. Yes. In some ways, the systems are underperforming, but in other ways, the systems are overperforming. They are showing characteristics that had not been expected to arrive maybe five or ten years. So we're all in this learning together, frankly. Absolutely. And there are all sorts of people who quote Bill Gates about the arrival of technology. It's always later than you expect, but earlier than anticipated, whatever that means. We overestimate the impact that it'll have in two years, and we always underestimate the impact that it'll have in five years, although those numbers vary. Well done, Callum. I think it may even be in one of your books, actually, that quote. But that's exactly the point. And so I think even our experts, people like I've quoted, probably didn't think that chat GPT would come along quite so fast. They probably thought that 
use of AI in agriculture and analysis and things of that sort would come quite quickly. But I don't think they thought that the creative use of AI would be quite so quick. And the quality of the images, for instance, with DALI and especially video, the deep fakes that are possible and so on. And so I do think you can distinguish between different sorts of AI and where people thought they would go. Yeah. One of the things that your reports acknowledged is that advanced AI is really a duopoly at the moment between the US and China. And the UK is at best a very distant third. And even collectively, the EU is nowhere near the level of the big two. Does that concern you? And if so, do you think there's anything that the EU and or the UK can do anything about? I don't think in terms of punching weight and all this kind of stuff, we're going to be able to do that at scale. But I do think selecting areas, cyber, various particular areas of AI is certainly possible. We got some fantastic universities and actually ethical AI and the risk assessment tools and so on is one of those areas. In 2016, I think you could see this coming down the track. You could see that China and the US are always going to be the big players. We just hope that amongst our European competitors that we were, in a sense, a little bit preeminent. And I think in unicorn terms and so on, I think we are. And so I think that's useful. But it does mean that some kind of international agreement on regulation, on ethical application and so on, I think, in my view, is absolutely crucial because what you have to do is set boundaries. If a Chinese developer, having developed it using a phenomenal database in China, for instance, when you think of health applications and so on and so forth, there are far, far, far fewer boundaries for them in the use of data than there are for us. Now, if you just let that rip and you said, fine, any form of AI development, any form of AI system developed anywhere in the world, irrespective of the ethics involved, is fine, then I think we'd be plunged into a real problem. But I think that we have to make sure we have these ethical boundaries. We're not there yet, but we've got the EU AI Act coming down the track, which is not perfect, but it's got a risk-based approach, which I think is the right one. I'm not quite sure whether our AI regulation, which is going to be in a proposal in a white paper in April or so, is going to be fit for purpose. We'll see, because the talk is always a very context-specific AI. And I'm afraid, I think, it may have to be multi-context-specific to really hit the button. But we'll see what comes along. And because the US, even though they may not have federal rules, certainly when you look at the way that California is going, when you look at the tools that people like the National Institute, I think it's for standards and technology, what they're coming up with in terms of approved risk assessment tools and so on, I think we're converging. And that's what the Global Partnership on AI was designed to do as well, which, of course, excludes China. So I'm reasonably optimistic that give or take a year or two, we're going to be in a better place. I'm not saying we're going to be in a perfect place, because I think technology always moves faster than the regulators can really catch up with it. But I think we may be able to anticipate the worst of it whilst not being able to filter out everything. But then again, if you have a deliberately innovation-friendly approach, 
you've got to understand somehow where the gaps and the risk lies. There's a price to be paid for being innovation friendly, which is probably worth paying in my view. Yes. The way that AI is unfolding is taking everybody by surprise. And it's very hard to regulate something if you don't know what it's going to do next week. And that's a very tricky subject. We should probably talk more about regulation. But before we do that, I'd just like to go back to this business about the duopoly between the US and China and the EU not being a player on the same level. The UK can't be. It's too small. But the EU could. It's an economy roughly the same size as China and not that much smaller than the US. And it's got some very big and successful companies and it produces lots and lots of good technologists. Would you like to see the EU establish an initiative to create some tech giants? so that it wasn't just the American and the Chinese tech giants who are making this cutting-edge technology? Well, they do have an AI strategy. The trouble is that the rivalry between different major countries is such, and especially the academic rivalry, which in a sense is often the source of the really interesting developments. I think it's very difficult for them to do it in a way that seemed to be even-handed And there is money available. A lot of the horizon type investment is AI related and so on. I think their best approach is having a broad industrial policy, which will encourage. But I don't think we can expect big money to really talk in that sense. I think the key is the regulatory leadership that they can give, actually. And just like the GDPR, so that, for instance, Microsoft right from the get-go, really treated GDPR dealing with data as the gold standard. And already you hear of the majors saying, well, the AI Act is what we're going to be adhering to by and large because 450 million consumers out there, a lot of European-based businesses are going to need to adhere to this. Yeah, yeah. The US, in terms of tools, are going to be going that direction, risk assessment tools and so on. It's more than our lives are worth to start thinking we can't adhere to that. Yeah. And certainly the UK government are going to have to understand that we're minnows actually in the regulatory field. We are going to have to be rule takers. But I mean, there's a cynical and a less cynical way of looking at that. One is that the big companies are saying, okay, so one of the three big economic centers of the world has put its hand up and said, this is going to be our regulation. The worst case is that The other two have different regulations. So let's all get behind the Europeans and hope that that becomes the global regulation. Then we haven't got chaos. That's the uncynical interpretation. The cynical interpretation is if you have all this regulation, which is really hard to work with, then it advantages large companies. So Microsoft and Google say, yummy, all this regulation is going to build a moat around our business because startups are going to struggle to comply with all these ridiculous bureaucratic standards. So we'll support it because it's actually an anti-small business structure. Now, I don't actually think that's true, but a lot of people argue that. I imagine you would disagree with that as well. I would. That's where I'm an enthusiast for risk-based regulation. It started all in Germany with this wonderful pyramid, this coloured pyramid of yellow moving to red at the top of the pile, so to speak. And Things like surveillance, things like AI, which manipulates emotion and so on and so forth, right at the top of the scale. And frankly, you should have no business developing really high risk AI unless you've got the regulatory ethical tools to really understand what you're doing. 
So I'm quite relaxed about that. And I think that if the mid-market and if the SME market develops the middle risk and the lower risk applications, that's fine. And as I say, the high risk applications, I would want to see quite a level of regulatory oversight. So I would encourage young developers fresh out of university to go for a different level of risk in the applications they're developing. Where does surveillance fit here? You seem to suggest it was right up there in the red area that any AI that helped do surveillance would be highly risky. Whereas other people point out that sometimes it can help to find people who were lost. It can help to flag up potential suspects who then could be investigated by normal police means so that it wouldn't be taken as gospel if it identified somebody, but it would help to track down dangerous people before they commit more danger. I completely agree, David, and there are some very beneficial uses of facial recognition. But for instance, sometimes it can be completely disproportionate. And this is where you need a framework for the adoption of AI for surveillance purposes. We've had debates about the use of AI in schools, where children on free school meals have facial recognition cameras pointed at them, and they then get their free school meal. Now, that seems to me to be using biometrics for not a very ethical purpose, frankly, when you can find other means of making sure that people can get their free school meal without having to take their biometrics and analyze it by AI. Now, when you're talking about identification of terrorists and so on and so forth, I absolutely agree. But at the moment, there is no regulation. There's no legal obligation on the police to say that they're engaged in sweeping areas with surveillance cameras. CCTV is being converted to live camera facial recognition all over the country. We're relying really on a college of policing code of practice as to when they tell us it's being used. There's no public register, for instance, of when AI systems are in place. So people like me are not zealots about the use of this but when you have high-risk applications, you need appropriate regulation. That's all we're saying. Now, the reason why the word moratorium has come in, and of course that's when people jump up and down and say, why are you suggesting you stop the use of all this? Well, we're only suggesting that we stop using it for the moment while we get our house in order and make sure that the police and public authorities really do understand what they're doing. The moment it's a new toy which is being used without a lot of real advertence to the implications. Yeah. Turning to the UK then, almost nobody who's both sane and honest now denies that Brexit's harming the UK's economy. But even though there's a clear majority of British voters now who think it was a mistake, both main political parties have got this kind of code of silence and omerta on the subject. With regard to AI specifically, do you think Brexit's hurting the UK's ability to play a major role or do you think the UK is doing okay in AI regardless? Oh, I think seen from a university point of view, the inability to take part in the Horizon projects going forward is a real problem. The government keep talking about this plan B, but we don't know. We were disproportionate beneficiaries of Horizon because we've got such brilliant research universities. I'm lucky to chair the governing council of one of them, Queen Mary. But 
all over the country. It isn't just London. It isn't just the Golden Triangle, Manchester. I've been to the computer school at Buckingham University, for instance. There's a great computer school in Hull. All over the country, we've got innovative research taking place. Collaboration is the name of the game in research in higher education, especially international collaboration. And that is being diminished in a big, big way. And we don't really know what the shape of things to come is at this moment. That is a result of failure to really put the Common Partnership Agreement into proper force, the Northern Ireland situation, and so on. So we've had this standoff for quite some time. Now, it may suddenly be the floodgates open, but academics can't hang around waiting for projects. So I do think that's uh, one thing. And the second thing about Brexit is the skills. It's the postgraduates coming into the UK. Much more difficult now in terms of uh, showing that they are exceptional skills and so on and so forth. Frankly, the willingness of academics from the European Union now to come to posts in UK universities has fallen. It's a very sad thing. We're not in the centre of the universe anymore. And yet we were such a major player in science and technology during our time in the EU. And you say the two major parties are not talking about this. You're absolutely right. It is a vow of a murder. But my party, we're not jumping the gun. We're not saying we've got to re-enter the EU, etc. What we do think is we need to lay the ground to do that. But it's got to be done in a proper proportionate kind of a way. And we start off by building decent relationships with our colleagues in Europe and then getting into the single market. So within a time space, I want to get in the single market, which would then open up an awful lot of other possibilities. But at the moment, because of this absolute obsession with immigration control, the single market is not on the cards for either of the two main parties. Talking about the influence of immigrants in our businesses, I remember I used to attend the AI London meetups, which was a magnificent event in which there would frequently be startups. And almost every time the people making the presentation were not born in Britain. They were from all over America, Eastern Europe, Asia, Western Europe. And I felt good about it. Are you seeing any difference now in the vitality of the AI startup ecosystem? Are you still seeing lots of innovation coming through? Or are you worried that things are going quieter? I think that we're not quite seeing that because an awful lot of the startups are just graduating. They're just graduates. And we haven't quite seen the impact of Brexit at the post-grad level. I'm convinced that is going to happen. You're absolutely right. I've been to so many terrific occasions in Cambridge, in London, in the North and so on. And we've had fantastic people come to our AI all party group talking about their particular innovations and their startups and so on and so forth. And as you say, an awful lot of them weren't born in Britain and came to do their postgrad or their undergraduate education here in the UK. But I see this in terms of intake at universities, and it stands to reason. They don't have their fees paid, or they can't get loans for their fees any longer if they come from the EU. 
before, we had to treat them on all fours with UK citizens. We don't have to do that anymore. and We don't. We have to charge now. My university has to charge full fees for EU citizens. So it is not a happy situation. And although we haven't quite looked over the edge, we're getting there. Broadening the geographical boundaries a little, I notice among your many roles, you've been a member of the Saudi-Britain Joint Business Council. I've been looking into this recently. I know you probably know that Saudi Arabia is keen to become one of the leading countries in AI by building up a cadre of data scientists and AI experts, placing AI at the heart of their program to move away from oil, their Vision 2030. Do you think they will manage it? Do you think they will become a leading AI country? I think it's quite difficult to, in a sense, manufacture that. But by being an extraordinarily wealthy client... I think they can have quite an impact on how AI is developed. I'm afraid perhaps I'll choose a rather bad example, but Pegasus, for instance, a piece of spyware, AI-based. Which is an Israeli piece of software, isn't it? It's an Israeli piece of kit. But, of course, it's used by several Middle East governments. And as a result, of course, it's a highly successful piece of kit. So they've had quite an impact on the development of that by itself. It may be that with the development of places like King Abdullah University and so on and so forth, that they will get their own academic lift, if you like, because they've got the money to bring in people. I think it'll be mainly on the client side. It's interesting. The UAE, for instance, have for a long time been keen on the development of AI, They've got an AI minister who I know quite well and all credit to them for picking up the ball and running with it so early. But with a limited sector in higher education devoted to this, I think it's going to be quite difficult, however much money they do. What the Saudis have done, of course, is fund research in the UK. So there is money coming into the UK research institutions, which is Saudi and, of course, it's up to people as to whether or not they accept that money. But there have been people who've accepted the money and are engaged in research funded by the Saudi government. The mention of spyware brings back the issue of risks, risks of AI being adopted. We've talked about one or two cases. What about the use of AI in weapon systems? Is this something we should be drawing more people's attention to urgently? Well, David, you've hit a particular passion of mine. It's something that I share with far more distinguished commentators and experts on AI than me. People like Professor Stuart Russell at Berkeley have been working on this kind of thing for quite a long time. We have the ability in the House of Lords to have special inquiries, but you have to make the case, and it's quite a competitive situation. I got long-listed, then short-listed, and then finally I became one of the three inquiries that got through the hoop, so to speak, which is an investigation by a special select committee into lethal autonomous weapons. That's because I think it's absolutely crucial that we look at the implications. And if anything is high risk, those are high risk. When we did the AI Select Committee report, AI in the UK, ready, willing and able, question mark. One of the unfinished bits of business, essentially, in that report 
was about lethal autonomous weapons. And we said that there should be a separate inquiry. So I'm very pleased, actually, that we've succeeded in doing that. We've got a very distinguished chair, former clerk of the House of Commons, Lord Lisbane, who's going to be chairing that. Our job is to get the report done by the end of November this year. And we're going to be taking evidence very, very shortly from late February onwards. So we are responding to a really important public policy issue. It's a tough one, this. I defer to nobody in my respect for Professor Russell and for Max Tegmark and people like that. But it does strike me as being an impossible task to stop people deploying lethal autonomous weapons when they are good enough. If you have a tank which is controlled by an AI facing off against a tank which is controlled by a human, the tank controlled by the AI is going to win. And no army is going to accept losing every single battle it goes into. We have banned certain weapons more or less effectively in the past, but this one is an absolute game changer at every level. I just don't see how they can be banned. Yeah, I think it's going to be really difficult. I think people tend to talk about limitation, a bit like nuclear weapons, but you're right. This is exactly why we need an inquiry, because there's a huge amount of unease about this, but not many solutions put forward to how we might deal with it. And you need a real mixture of ethicists and technicians and military and so on. And we've got some really good people. Lord Houghton, for instance, who was the head of the army before, he's just enthusiastic about having this inquiry as any of us, any of us, the sort of AI wonks like me. So we've got really a terrific collection of people who are going to be involved in this inquiry. Let's hope we can come up with some thoughts. I'm not really putting it any higher than that. But what was really interesting is that the Liaison Committee, which is this group of people who really determine the inquiries that take place in the Lords, were extremely enthusiastic about doing something on this front. Well, it's a very important subject. You've been following AI for many years now, so I'm sure you have developed some opinions on when we might see the really big developments, like technological unemployment and then the really, really big one, which is superintelligence. Do you have a date or sort of rough time period in mind when we might see artificial general intelligence, an AI which has all the cognitive abilities of an adult human? We tend to think of this single superintelligence. I tend to think of something that is going to be a collection of different AI systems. Say, for instance, you know, you've got certain systems which are very good at analysis. You've got others which are very good at natural language processing. You've got others which are very good at image recognition and so on. Maybe in the future, I think 10, 15 years, it will come together. But even now, the ability to have a multi-purpose AI is quite strong. It's just that nobody's really put that all together. There are a few which have a couple of different systems embodied in the same system, so to speak, or in a single envelope. So I think it may be slightly misleading to think that this is going to be something which is going to be recognisably totally different. I think it may creep up on us rather quicker than we think. Look, my son has been applying for trainee solicitor jobs in London and did so a year ago or so. And even then, during the lockdown, virtually every law firm that he encountered, the system, the interview process 
was done by AI. That was what it was. And quite often the law firms contract this out to specialist AI recruitment people. Now, that is fairly chilling, actually. But it just shows you that if people rely to that extent on a piece of AI, then this stuff is going to develop really quite quickly. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but did I just hear you say that you think artificial general intelligence, when somebody does put all these systems together and it gets to be human level at all tasks, might happen as soon as 10 to 15 years in the future? I wouldn't be at all surprised. It gives every impression of being able to do all these things. It'll be a question of combining all these things. What it may not have is all the neural links that we have between our different functions. But I think that if you press the right buttons, a single piece of kit will be able to do quite a lot of things that humans do. Now, whether that's embedded in a body of a robot or it's more conceptual than that, I'm not going to predict. But let's face it, GPT-3 could pass the Turing test easily now, couldn't it? I would disagree with that. I really don't think it could. Really? No. Well... Frankly, if I asked a question of GPT-3 and it came back to me and I've done that, I wouldn't know whether or not I'd asked an academic. Yeah, but if you had a conversation with it for half an hour or two hours, I think you would trip it up pretty quickly. Possibly, but quarter of an hour, 20 minutes, I think you'd be okay. I think what will make a difference is, as you said, Tim, it's the combination systems when you bolt on a few other things to chat GPT. Yes. So it's got the ability to connect to Wolfram Alpha to do some mathematical, logical reasoning. It's got the ability to search the internet in real time, which current chat GPT apparently doesn't have. So it would be able to answer questions partly from its own memory, but also from these other systems. And I, I'm with you. I think we might get to AGI not by somebody inventing a single magical AGI module, but by just finding ways to connect things together. After all, I don't think the human brain probably has a single consciousness module. Somehow consciousness emerges from interaction from numerous other modules that each have their own reasons. So I think we can see more changes, more questions, more risks, more opportunities pretty soon. Yeah. So it's not just ChatGPT who's got to have politicians from all parties knocking on your door saying, teach us more. There's going to be new things, I think, in 2023 and 2024 that are going to raise the temperature even more. Yeah. So I really wish your work all the success. I think that's absolutely right. Another example is, say, for instance, chat GPT giving instructions to DAL-E or something like that. Chat GPT has got the ability to frame an order, which is quite creative, and then DAL-E has got the ability to deliver the image of the words that have been delivered. So I think this joining up is the thing that I would look out for. And that's why you have to have risk-based regulation. It's got to be what they call, it's a lovely phrase, politicians grab hold of, technology neutral regulation. It does have a truth in it. But when they say technology neutral, I'm not quite sure they understand quite what they mean. What I mean by it is you don't look at individual types of AI. You say, look, autonomous systems are things that you have to have a risk approach to in regulation terms. And within that, 
It doesn't matter whether it's image recognition or it's natural language processing or diagnostics or whatever it may be. You've got to look at the overarching risk. Well, that was a very articulate defence for risk-based regulation. Spoken like a true lawyer and politician, Tim. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed for being our guest on the London Futurist podcast. It's been a huge pleasure, Callum. Thank you very much. And David, thank you. For our listeners, if you like this episode, please rate us, give us a thumbs up, write a review, and look out for lots of other episodes in all the usual places. Thank you.